Zechariah, chapter 3, second last book of your Old Testament, Zechariah, chapter 3. And the theme for this morning's message is Good Friday and the End Time. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, on this Friday, to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, although we commemorate the death of our Lord Jesus every Lord's Supper, but this morning we pray, Lord, that you would let this message go forth, the message of the King, May it go forth triumphantly for the saving of the lost and for the encouragement of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some people think the whole matter with the coronavirus and some other things happening, some people think this is the sign that we're in the last days well, I don't know if that's so. Uh, Hebrews does tell us in chapter 1 and in chapter 9, it seems the last days refers not merely to the final days before the second coming of Jesus, but even before the final days, or even the final days before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And then some think the last days refers to the whole time between the first and second coming. But concerning the very last days before the second coming, I don't know if this is it, but I do see some connection between that very first Good Friday when Jesus Christ was crucified and the last days or the end time. And we're going to see it under three different words this morning. The first word is justification, and that is in verse 1 to 5. Then he, that's the angel, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand, or it means a piece, a stick, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken, taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments or garments. And I said, this is Zechariah the prophet, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So let's say you have a fine, you get a fine of 250,000 rand, you can't pay it, and then someone comes and pays your fine. Well now you're free to go, but you are still the transgressor. And if I can now draw a contrast between that illustration and justification in God's court, the heavenly court. When God justifies the sinner, what happens, as we understand 
The New Testament doctrine is that Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he pays the fine for sinners, and then all those who repent and believe in him and trust in him, their sins are wiped away because of his death on the cross, and then Jesus' perfect life is credited to them. It's put to their account, and now they are declared innocent and righteous, not guilty, because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. So that's how it works in God's court. And that's what we see in Zechariah 3 verse 1 to 5. So here's Joshua the high priest. He's the high priest after, after Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. After Judah had returned from, from captivity in Babylon. So that's verse 1. We see Joshua the high priest. Uh, Joshua lived in the same time period as, the, as Ezra the scribe and the priest, as the governor Nehemiah, as the governor Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel really was the rightful king of Israel after Babylonian captivity. We learn that from Matthew 1 verse 12. And then he lived in the same time as the prophets uh, Zechariah and Haggai. And we learn this from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and, and obviously Zechariah also. So as high priest, um, Joshua really represents the people of Judah. And we see it, for instance, in verse 2, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Or verse 9, the end of verse 9, I remove the iniquity of the land, not just Joshua's sin that is removed. So now we see him here standing before the angel of the Lord in verse 1. Uh, the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. We see that in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Uh, Genesis 16, we see the angel of the Lord appearing to Hagar, and then she responds and says, I have seen the Lord. Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, do not kill your son when he wants to offer Isaac. Do not kill your son, and then we see uh, that the angel of the Lord then says, you have not withheld your only son from me. And the angel of the Lord speaks of himself as God. Genesis 31, the angel of the Lord appears to jo Jacob in a dream. And then he says, I am the God of your father. Exodus 3 verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush to Moses. And then he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he he reveals himself as, I am who I am. <coughs> and yet, although the angel of the Lord is himself God, he's also a different person from uh, to the Lord or from the Lord. Second uh, Samuel 24 verse 16, you see the Lord speaking to the angel of the Lord. Or in Zechariah 1 verse 11 to 13. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We've patrolled the earth and so on, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and so on? And then the Lord answers him. So, so the angel of the Lord is the Lord, but yet he's a different person. And from the New Testament we know that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, whereas the Lord... In Zechariah 1, verse 11 to 13, is God the Father. So it's God the Father speaking to God the Son and vice versa. So now we see Satan in verse 1. 
standing at the right hand of Joshua and he's ready to accuse him like he did with Job in Job 1 and 2, accusing Job to God. And what he does here in Zechariah is he, he's, he accuses Joshua and he's really, remember, accusing Israel because Joshua represents Israel, accusing Israel because they have dirty clothes. Verse 3, Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments, filthy clothes. It's as if Satan accuses Joshua and Israel or Joshua and, and Judah saying, Joshua can't be the high priest. Look at him. He's a filthy sinner. You can't choose Israel. You can't choose Judah to be your people. They've sinned against you. And then the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem Already in chapter 1, verse 17 and 2, verse 12, God reminds His people of that. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8 says God has chosen Israel. And so now He says in verse 2, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And the Lord says the same to Satan when He comes and He wants to accuse Christians today. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Satan cannot come and bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen people, Romans 8, 33 and 34, because God has justified us. Jesus has already kept the law in our place. Jesus has already paid the punishment for our law-breaking, for our sin. So the accuser of the brothers... The accuser of the saints, the accuser, the, uh, the accuser of Christians, of believers, he's cast out of heaven. He can no longer accuse. So we don't need to feel depressed and discouraged when Satan comes to accuse us for our sins. And when your conscience bothers you and accuses you, what you should do is take your sin and on the ground of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross on Good Friday, you go and confess your sins and and. You can believe that God will forgive you and cleanse you of those sins. 1 John 1 verse 7 and verse 9. And then remember that God has also saved you as, as someone grabs a stick and pulls it out of the fire. He's plucked you from the fire, verse 2. Just like Job was rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroys it with fire from heaven. Just as Jude 23 says that sinners should be grabbed and saved from hell like you save someone from the fire. And that is exactly how God saved Joshua, the high priest in Israel, or Judah, how he rescued them from Babylon as if you pull the stick from the fire. Uh, Amos 4 verse 11 says the same. Just as God drew Israel and pulled them out of Egypt from slavery, from the fiery furnace, Deuteronomy 4 verse 20. And then Joshua, we see, yes, we see why they needed to be rescued and why they need God's grace is because Joshua and the people of God, Judah, their lives were like filthy garments, verse 3, Isaiah 64, verse 6. And the same for us in Jude 23, our lives are like filthy garments, like dirty clothes, soiled clothes. We, we sinners, we, we sinners from the moment of conception, says Psalm 51, verse 5. Uh, in 58 verse 3, we have evil hearts, corrupt hearts, says Jeremiah. And 
Genesis 6 verse 5 and Matthew 15 verse 19, we have evil hearts and evil deeds and evil motives and evil thoughts and evil emotions and evil words. Romans 3 verse 10 and verse 10 to 12 and verse 23, Jeremiah 13, 23. You know, if, if the Lord doesn't hold us back, we are capable of the worst of sins, uh, like that general of the army of the Syrians who thought he will never, he's, he'll never kill the king and, and rip open pregnant women and kill their babies. But he did. He did. Peter thought, I'll never deny Jesus, but he did. Just think of King David. King David, the godly King David, who murdered and committed adultery. Thomas Watson, a Puritan who lived in the 1600s, he said that our hearts are like, it's like muddy soil. It just pollutes the cleanest and purest water that may flow over that soil. Our hearts are like, it's like a sleeping lion that is awakened. Our hearts is like, uh, hearts are like uh, smoldering coals. You've got these blazing hot coals, but you don't see it because there's a layer of ash. But just blow the coals and it'll, it'll rage to, a, to become a fire. So sin is very wicked. It's very evil. It's very ugly. Sin makes you like the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Jesus said to Judas, you're, you're a devil in John 6 verse 70. Sin makes you a child of the devil, 1 John 3 verse 8, John 8 44. You see what sin does. Despite all God's goodness to us, what sin does, sin wants to dethrone God so that we can be God. That is what Satan said to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. That is what Satan himself did. I will be like the Most High in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. Sin wants to un-God God. If sin could, it would kill God. And that's exactly what we see. When God becomes man, what does sin do? kills God. It nails him to a cross. And even just the biblical pictures of sin shows us how ugly sin is. I'm not going to give you all the references. Perhaps I should just quickly. Uh, but you can find them on the internet. I've got it on Baptista Kerk, Kempton Park. Even though you may not understand Afrikaans, you'll just see a lot of bullets and you'll see the references in brackets. Uh, sin is described as a predator that stalks you, Genesis 4 verse 7, as deep stains, as filthy clothes, Psalm 51 verse 2, Isaiah 1 18, Zechariah 3 3, as a, a trap that catches animals, Proverbs 5 22, Galatians 6 1, as a heavy burden, Isaiah 53 verse 6 and verse 12, as muddy water and muck, uh, Isaiah 57 20 and 21. As debt that you cannot repay, Matthew 6, 12, 18, 21 to 35, Luke 7, 41. As a contagious virus, as a deadly disease, like the coronavirus, Matthew 9, 11 and 12, Romans 5, verse 12. As darkness, 
John 3, 19 and 20, as a hard and harsh slave master. John 8, 34, Romans 6, 16, as a murderer. Romans 6, 23, Romans 7, 11, as yeast. And as you know, yeast influences everything around it. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, as the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, as a man who works in jail, a prison guard, a prison keeper, Galatians 3.22, as the grave of a sinner, Ephesians 2 verse 1, as a liar and deceiver, Hebrews 3.13, as something that clings to you, it's almost like a rope around your ankles, Hebrews 12 verse 1, as a lawless person, 1 John 3 verse 4. And then also even the results of and the consequences of the fall in Genesis 3. What are the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin? Sickness, pain, tears, emotional problems, uh, relationship problems, death, hell. And then also the cross, the, the horrible death that Jesus had to endure or the suffering and the death he had to die on the cross. It shows us how ugly sin is. The coronavirus shows us how ugly sin is. Cancer, abortion, all the wickedness of man. So verse 2 is very serious when, it's, when you see Joshua standing in filthy garments. Israel, filthy garments. Judah, and we ourselves, filthy garments standing in front of a holy God. And yet we find God's mercy. We find the solution where the, you see the angel of the Lord saying to the heavenly being standing in front of him. He says in verse 4, remove his filthy garments. So in other words, take away his guilt. His sin is forgiven. And that of course is Jesus who forgives our sins. Mark 2 verse 7 and verse 10. Jesus is God who can forgive sin. So what he does is he doesn't, he doesn't leave Joshua standing naked. He covers his nakedness, his nudity. He covers him with festal rose, with pure vestments, just like God covered Adam and Eve when they were naked. He covered them with animal skins. He killed animals. He brought a sacrifice. And so really these pure vestments or pure garments, in the Hebrew it speaks of, it speaks of um, uh, the... The cloak, the mantle, the mantle piece, the, what shall I call it? The robes of a king, of a royal person. And here you see then the angel of the Lord. What's he doing? He's taking his kingly garments, his kingly robes, and he swaps them for the filthy robes of Joshua, of Judah, and of sinners like us. He does it for us, for all who repent, for all who believe in Him. He takes our filthy clothes, our sin-soiled garments, and He clothes us with His perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. So you no longer have to wear the filthy garments of sin. You can wear the clean robes, the pure robes, the pure cloak of the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10. 
Luke 15, 22. Romans 13, verse 14. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 7. We are clothed with Christ. Revelation 3, 4, and 5. Revelation 7, verse 14. Our clothes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 8. We have white garments. Revelation 22, verse 14. We have washed our clothes. We can enter the heavenly city. So no effort from your side, no good works can ever make you acceptable to God. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus. Only He brings redemption full and free. There's a yearning in all our lives that only Jesus satisfies. Calvary's love will sail forever bright and shining strong and free like an ark of peace and safety on the sea of human need. Through the hours of all the ages, those tired of sailing on their own finally rest inside the shadow cast by Calvary's love across their souls. Calvary's love. Calvary's love. Priceless gift Christ makes us worthy of. The deepest sin can't rise above Calvary's love. The blood of Jesus cleanses us completely. And that is why you see in this text, that is why you see God saying through the prophet Zechariah, saying to these angels, don't only remove Joshua's clothes, don't only remove Judah's clothes, Israel's clothes, also remove the turban and put a clean turban on his head, verse 5. And then they do this in the presence of the angel of the Lord, you see in verse 5. And then they put this clean turban on him. It's really a crown because the high priest had the clean turban and a golden plate on it. It was tied to it and it said on, that, on the high priest's turban holy to the Lord. We learn that from Exodus 28, 36 to 38. And it's his crown. It's the, the, the high priest's crown. Zechariah 6, 11. So it's to show Israel, at least Joshua representing Israel, representing Judah, that, that God's people, they are a kingly priesthood, a royal priesthood, uh, according to Exodus 19, 6. And we too, we too who trust in Christ, we're a royal priesthood. According to 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and Revelation 1 verse 6 and 5 verse 10. A royal priesthood. What does it mean practically? Practically it means you can confess your own sin. You don't need any other priest. We've got Christ as our high priest and we are priests. And you can be forgiven and you can bring spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Sacrifices acceptable to God. Sacrifices of thanksgiving, of praise. Sacrifices of good deeds and sharing with other Christians. Sacrifices of sharing the gospel and making disciples. Sacrifices of prayer. Sacrifices of giving money to missionaries. And I've got all the text here. Psalm 50, 23, Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, Romans 15, 16, Revelation 5, verse 8, 8, verse 3 to 5, Philippians 4, 18. But more than all of these, more than all of these, the first and foremost that you need to give 
as a sacrifice, as a, as a priest. Give your self. Romans 12 verse 1. Have you given yourself? Have you given your life? Has Jesus removed your filthy clothes and, and covered you with his pure robes of righteousness? Stop trying to change yourself. Stop trying to say, I will remove my filthy clothes. I will clothe myself with clean robes. Stop trying to do that. Stop trying to say and saying, I will first stop doing this, and then I'll start doing that, and then God will accept me. Just stop your own efforts and ask Him. Ask Him, remove my filthy garments and clothe me in your pure robes and trust that he will do so we are justified by faith alone without the works of the law number two so that was the first word justification second word is sanctification verse six to eight the angel of the lord solemnly assured joshua thus says the lord of hosts if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So justification, it's a single act by which God through our faith in Jesus Christ, by which God declares us not guilty and righteous. We saw that in verse 1 to 5, swapping out dirty clothes for his clean clothes. Sanctification, it's a process. It's not a single act. It's a process, slowly but surely, by which God works in us and through us <coughs> to make us more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And then that is completed when you die. Your spirit is made perfect. Hebrews 12.23 And then your body is perfectly sanctified or made perfect at the second coming of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 John 3 verse 2 So any gospel that comes and tells you that you need to by a single act be made holy meaning, I mean, perfect, and justification is a process, or that just confuses sanctification and justification or swaps them, that's a false gospel. Let me give you an example. I once visited a man, and in his garden there was a slab, of, a marble slab, and engraved on the marble slab were these words, enter heaven through sanctification, not through justification. But that implies you can earn your justification. You can earn a right standing before God once you have lived holy enough. You've just done enough and, and lived a life holy enough and your efforts, in other words, you deserve heaven. Well, that implies that some people in heaven, people who are in heaven are there because they're better than others. So then you start bragging about yourself and boasting in yourself, saying, you know why I'm here and you're not? Because I, were, I was holier than you and I did more than you. 
And then you start boasting in yourself, in self, in yourself instead of praising God alone. Whereas the Bible clearly teaches us, but by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. But we know it's, it's from God alone, right? Now, immediately the question comes, and someone may now object and say, yes, but does that now mean you can live as you please, you can sin as you please, because we're saved by grace alone, and we're already justified? No, 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 no. That's not what it means. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, no, says the Apostle Paul. What it does mean is that justification, not sanctification, justification is the basis, the foundation for our salvation. So justification brings you in a right standing with God, verse 1 to 5. So justification is the roots of the tree. Sanctification is the good fruit that proves you have healthy roots. So verse 6 to 8 is the proof of verse 1 to 5. That's, you, that's how you're going to prove you've been justified. Good works, James 2 verse 14 to 26, good works prove that you have true faith. So therefore, it's as if God says to Joshua, Joshua, if you live a holy life, verse 7, if you keep my charge and walk in my ways, then you will rule my people. You will be the ruler in my house in this rebuilt temple because the temple is being rebuilt. You will be the ruler as the high priest. And you will not only have charge of my courts, you, it's like you will be a security there to prevent anyone who may not come in there to enter the temple. And you will stand with these who are standing here, these angels, you will also come into my presence, into, into the, the most holy place as high priest. And the same goes for us. That's why the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see God. No one will see the Lord. Because holiness is the proof that you've been justified. A holy life is the proof. So the question then to you, are you holy? Are you separated from the world, separated to God? Does your life look different from those around you? Are you devoted to God? Is Jesus everything to you? And then even if you answer yes, <coughs> even if you do answer yes, you, uh, you must acknowledge that even the holy life you live is not from yourself. What do I mean? Well, Joshua the high priest and his friends sitting there, the other priests, his fellow priests, they were a sign, verse 8 tells us. They were a sign of what? The, a sign of the great priest would come. The great priest would come who is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord's servant, verse 8. He is the branch, verse 8. Uh, the servant comes from, from Isaiah uh, 42, 49, 50, 52, and 53. So he's the servant. He's the servant who did not come to serve himself, but he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he is the branch. He's the branch from the line of David. 
He's the branch from the sprout, from, from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And we learn this from Isaiah 11 verse 1. That Jesus is this branch from the stump or the sprout. After the tree of Israel had been chopped down. And now he's the sprout that grows again. The tree will again grow large. He'll grow like a branch. He will, he will bear good fruit in us and through us. Uh, even Zechariah 6 verse 12 calls him the branch. Jeremiah 23 verse 5, 33 verse 15. Isaiah 4 verse 2, the branch that bears fruit. And then from the New Testament, he's the vine and we're the branches that now grow from him and his life in us and we bear fruit, bear fruit through Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.11. So then, what do we conclude? We conclude that if the fruit we bear, the fruit of repentance, the changed nature, the changed character, our changed lives... If that comes from him and through him, then you shouldn't read your Bible saying, Oh, this is what God tells me. Let me do it now. No. You shouldn't think, Oh, justification is from God, but sanctification comes only from me. No. This is what you should do. Read your Bible and then ask the help of the Holy Spirit to obey what you read. Ask the Spirit's help to be a holy man or a holy woman, a holy boy, a holy girl. Ask the help of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It reminds me of the story I read. Jerry Bridges is an author. He's in heaven now, but Jerry Bridges wrote in a book called um, what was the title again? It's something about the transforming power of the gospel. And he writes in this book that in his early years as a pastor, he used to preach to people uh, and tell people that the way to fight these sinful desires in your heart is to just have Bible verses in your head that tell you, you should do this, you should do that. And that'll overcome the sinful desires. And then he realized, but it doesn't. Because these desires are stronger than his willpower. Until God showed him the, the ugliness of his own heart and the sin in his own heart. And then he just turned to the gospel once again and said, Lord, I still need the gospel. I still need the gospel. I need to preach it to myself every day, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And he realized, and we should too, when it comes to sanctification, we still need the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. And then finally, number three, the third word, the first one was justification, the second one sanctification, the third one is reconciliation. Verse 9 and 10. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, Ken Sandy is a, an advocate, a lawyer, who wrote a book called The Peacemaker. 
And the whole book is about how to make peace with people. Uh, with other people, you've been arguing with them, or they're your enemies, how to be reconciled to them. And this is exactly what Jesus comes to do. Jesus is the servant of verse 8. He's the branch of verse 8. But verse 9 is also the stone. He's the stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone of the new temple, the church. And we learn this from Psalm 118.22, Isaiah 28.16. And then many passages in the New Testament. Let me just mention one. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 and verse 6 to 8. Or perhaps one more. Ephesians 2 verse 20. So he's the stone. He's the stone with seven eyes. We learn from verse 9. Um, and seven is the complete number. Or is the number of perfection. And seven eyes like in Revelation 5 verse 6. Means he sees Perfectly, He knows perfectly. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. And then God engraves on this stone. What does He engrave? He engraves our names, the names of those who believe, the names of the elect. 2 Timothy 2 verse 19, this foundation stand with this inscription upon it. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity or repent. Revelation 3 verse 12, we will be a pillar in the house of the Lord, and God's name will be on us. <coughs> and then the Lord also says in verse 9, in a single day I will remove the sin, the iniquity of this land. In a single day I will remove it. The single day, Good Friday, the single day when Jesus died on the cross, the single day when Jesus nailed our debts, the record of death that stood against us, He nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2 verse 14. And for, who, for whom was this done? For whom or for who did Jesus do this? Well, the Jews needed to learn this lesson, in the first century especially, it's for everyone. It's not only for the Jews. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews. God so loved the world. As the early church had to learn from important meetings in Acts 11 and 15, not only the Gentiles or the Jews, but the Gentiles. But for us now, for many ages and for many centuries, but also in the 21st century, we need to learn it's not only for the Gentiles. It's also for the Jews. I will remove the iniquity of the land. That is the land of Israel in verse 9. Verse 3 to 5, I've chosen Jerusalem. Romans 11, verse 25 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is coming. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Jews will be saved. Does it seem impossible to you, these stubborn Jews, that God can save them? These Jews who have rejected the Messiah? God will remove their sins. God has removed sins in a single day. He did it when he died on the cross, verse 9. And certainly he can save the Jews in an instant. Isaiah 66 verse 8 says, 
A nation can be born in a single day. So the same God who can save the Jews, this same God can send a revival across the whole earth and save millions of people, millions of people, a super revival according to Isaiah 60. Romans 11, when God saves the Jews, it teaches us what will he not do for the world if the rejection of Israel means so much blessing and riches for the world and salvation for the world, reconciliation for the world. What will happen if God saves the Jews? It'll be like life from the dead. It'll be a revival. And he will do this based on Good Friday. Based on verse 9. Because he has removed the iniquity of the land in a single day. And therefore, based on verse 9, we have verse 10. Joy, prosperity, blessing, love, peace that God will bring on earth. Verse 10. You'll invite everyone his neighbor, so there's peace and love. Come and sit under my vine, under my fig tree. There you have prosperity and joy. Yes, a new heavens and a new earth which is coming, it's coming. And of course that we find, we'll find that fullness when Jesus returns. And when we get there, you will realize that the sweet and crisp and juicy fruit of this tree received its life from the roots that were planted 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, a hill called Calvary. Let us pray. Our Father, what a great day to be reminded of the death of Jesus for our sins, but also to look forward to the final days before your coming and then to your coming and then to a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, we long for that day and call. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.